Hello and welcome to the third series of the Bold Flavors podcast. I'm Timo, founder and CEO of Gusto. At Gusto, our vision is to be the most loved way to eat dinner and we currently deliver millions of meals every week. Our purpose is to build amazing products that have positive impact on people and the planet and we are customer and culture obsessed. From every episode, you can expect frank and fascinating conversations on leadership, what makes a person tick and scaling businesses. Since starting Gusto in 2012, I've spoken with so many amazing, inspirational and talented people who have shaped my thinking. This podcast is all about sharing some of these experiences with you. Jeremy joins me today. He went from biology PhD and Harvard degree to McKinsey, where he spent nine years advising companies around the world. He then followed his dream to start his own company, a test, a SaaS company, automating insights to fuel growth. Today, the company has 125 employees and is growing rapidly and globally. Jeremy is also the chair of the largest primary school trust in the UK. In this episode, Jeremy talks about how he learned pattern recognition at McKinsey, how he thought about starting his own company, and what it is that he actually does as the CEO. Jeremy, thanks so much for joining the Bold Flavors podcast. You have an amazing science background. You turned to McKinsey, you started your own company. Before we get into any of this, I would love to hear where you grew up. Oh, excited to be here and thank you for having me. So I, I grew up in London, but my whole family's American. So I'm quite confused about nationality, accents, <laughs> languages, things like that. My wife's Australian, so I speak English, but it kind of ends there. But I grew up in, in London, but spent a lot of time visiting family all over the States. My mum has lots of older siblings who are all over the States. Uh, my dad has one brother who's lived a while in, in Louisville, Kentucky, a while in Chicago, a while in DC. So I spent a lot of time split between the UK and the US, but uh, also growing up basically being a tourist in the UK where my whole family thought they were going to move back to the US any instant, spent a lot of time traveling around Europe and visiting Europe as if it was the last time we'd ever be here. So quite an interesting time to be alive and quite a fun combination to grow up with. Nice. And the language point um, is very familiar to me. And how did it influence you? Well, I think I, I got a bit of an appetite for adventure very early on in that visiting all of these strange places and meeting different people from different backgrounds. I mean, the US and UK are pretty similar, but going to Alabama and going to Arizona and going to New York are basically like visiting three completely different EU countries. They have the same language of English, but people talk in very different ways. They have similar legal systems, but at a state level, things work very differently as we see in US elections. So I think these things became interesting ingredients to think about the, how the world works different um, different mixes of different opinions, how different parts of different countries work, comparing the UK and the US, but also comparing US states. Just a fun way to experience and learn about different philosophies and different approaches. And I think that's something I've always carried with me all along. Having lived in the US and the UK now for a long time, 
I, I love contrasting the systems and reading different newspapers. And it's really fun, actually, seeing the differences. Um, yeah. And what are some of the food things that you that you sort of liked from the US that you brought back to Europe? I'm always interested to see how people go the other way. I mean, Mexican. I lived in California for two years and near the border, actually. Um, so I lived, I spent a year in Napa Valley, which is incredible um, for food. But I also lived near the Mexican border, across the border every single day. My best buddy was a Mexican. Um, so he took me to Mexico. I visited lots of family parties, which was amazing. And the Mexican food was just absolutely incredible. If you look at the UK, you know, you have two, three Mexican restaurants, but it's a really underserved market in that sense. Um, that's certainly one of the best memories I had. Oh, completely with you. My mum my is from Arizona and mm. I made it. I mean, I love Oaxaca as a brand, as a company, as a mm-hmm. restaurant, but I made a big mistake of taking my mum to Oaxaca once. She, <laughs> she was like, what is this? This is this is not a taco. This is basically a ham sandwich with spicy ketchup. Like, it's delicious, <laughs> but like, don't call it Mexican. I'm like, I'm pretty sure they're not claiming that this is the real deal. And I'm pretty sure that Arizona Mexican is also not Mexican. And she was like, oh, fair play. But to your point, there's so much interesting Mexican food. I think it's hugely, hugely underrepresented in the UK and would be a great gift if more people could get into it a bit more. Yeah. And um, so you you like food? Uh, hugely, yeah. I, I think when I was a kid, I would always import random food items from the US and try to share them with friends in Britain. Oh, that's so amazing. I'd, I'd bring over, I mean, I, I made some bad choices though. So I'd bring back things like um, cinnamon and brown sugar Pop-Tarts, mm-hmm. goober grape, peanut butter and jelly. But <laughs> like it's in a jar and it has stripes, vertical stripes like toothpaste of peanut oh, wow. butter yeah, and grape jam. It's so good, but you'd bring it to British people or show it to like, you know, I had a friend who was from France and he was like, what is this? This is, this is completely wrong. This is wild. <laughs> So, so cheese whiz was another one. I got into putting cheese whiz on Ritz crackers. That's mm-hmm. for anyone who doesn't know, that's a uh, aerosol based cheese product in a can that comes mm-hmm. out of a nozzle like whipped cream. It's so good, but so wrong. But then since then, living in um, living around Europe, traveling a lot with McKinsey, living in Australia for a while, got much more into food and cooking and uh, kind of tried to leave Pop-Tarts, Cheese Whiz and Goober Grape behind. <laughs> nice, good choice, yeah. <laughs> and was any any person in your family into business? How did you get into business? Uh, well, my parents were originally based in New York and DC and both of them worked in in some way in in diplomacy so my mom worked for the state department my dad spent some time working at the world bank and they moved to london to work in europe specifically in austria but i think when they moved to work in europe you had to live in london but then spent a lot of time traveling to austria to work there which seems like a pretty wild combination of things back then and mm-hmm. my dad I think his first job was in Brazil. So he worked with the US government in Brazil for a while. And that was an interesting set of things. I think three of them moved to Brazil, all of them for their first job. 
two of them moved back after a while. One of them never left. And I went with my dad once to go and meet him. Uh, and he's still living there in Rio, like a, like the king of Ipanema Beach. He drinks <laughs> it's a fun place. every day. He eats casquinha de siri for breakfast, which are little deep fried crabs in a shell. Like, you know, that's, that's quite inspirational as a food dream. So I thought like, these are the things that are possible and maybe, maybe going into business, you can get some of these adventures for yourself. And it's always been quite fun to learn from those. Well, so you had an incredibly international upbringing, um, really fascinating. Yeah, and then um, I was lucky to be able to travel quite a lot with McKinsey in that working in McKinsey, you're, you're sent to lots of weird and wild places at short notice. There were times where I had to go to Russia at, I think it was under 24 hours notice. That was quite difficult to organize. There was a time where I found myself on a plane to Kuwait City on a <laughs> Sunday afternoon. Um, and then I went with a client to a Kuwaiti wedding in the second week I was there. Like wow. weddings are where, you know, you bring people together. It's much more of a sort of a family barbecue type thing. It just happened to be a wedding and people hang out in these big family town halls called, a, I think it was called a diwania. And you just bring people and they had the most amazing... I think it was called Makbus Laham, this amazing lamb biryani dish. Mm. Don't describe it as biryani because it was definitely something else, but it looked a lot like biryani. But then <laughs> maybe they kept on saying that you had to have at least three to, three to five times more food than you had people just to create a sense of opulence. And it was, it was almost overwhelmingly amazing, all of it. So these adventures and these times and these traveling opportunities, I look back on with great fondness. But for me, food was always quite central to it. Amazing, amazing. Love it. And before you joined McKinsey, you went uh, and studied biology, I think, at Edinburgh. How was that like? Why did you decide biology? Well, like most people, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And I think in, in the British education system, we're quite lucky where, unlike, for example, Australia or sometimes in the US, your choice of degree in the UK doesn't necessarily premeditate what will happen to you after you finish college. It's much more like a kind of badge of achievement than it is a specific start to a specific profession. So I chose biology just because I was most interested in it as a subject. Since I was a, a small child, I've always been really fascinated by animals, specifically oceans and marine life and everything to do with sharks, whales, coral reef, crazy wild fish, and the discoveries of people like Cousteau, which means that for me, watching Blue Planet is borderline overwhelming. For me, that's like Champions League final and you know, <laughs> the most exciting box set all rolled into one. But I chose biology basically to do more of that and to understand it at a more fundamental level and to kind of advance that. And because it left other choices open. I spent a lot of time, particularly in my final year, studying baby reef fish and using combinations of genetic techniques and computer modeling to create predictive models about how sound and other influences create different populations of baby reef fish, how sound influences how reef fish move towards different reef and therefore the composition and ecology of the entire reef is driven by sound systems. And if you could introduce individual based modeling into this and then use genetic techniques to understand what's actually happening in the real world to train the models, you could create very clear predictive models about how sounds could cause reef health to improve or deteriorate over time. So I did a whole bunch of work using hundreds of hours of recordings of coral reefs in Oman to work out how to train these mathematical simulations, but based on real genetic data and facts. And that was quite a fun thing to do. And that probably sparked my interest in technology. The links 
specifically to then joining McKinsey, I'm still confused about. I still don't know how that happens. <laughs> <laughs> um, but something to do with science, something to do with data, something to do with empiricism, and something to do with that's what strategy consulting is. And um, I think that's why I made those choices. It was a personal passion for biology, but also secretly fueling a behind the scenes passion for learning more about the underwater world and how it works. Amazing. And uh, you did a couple of internships in banking, but then decided on consulting. I think both were kind of the flavor of the month back when you joined McKinsey. Why did you decide against banking and in favor of consulting? Yeah, easy to trash banking in retrospect, but at the time it was the flavor of the month. You know, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I I was lucky in that the PhD supervisor who I who I worked with on this refish work I mentioned, he made me a very generous offer. He said, you you could stay here and do a PhD and do more of this amazing refish stuff. It would be quite cool. But if you want to explore working in business, offer stands, you can come back anytime you want to. And I still might take him up on that. Steve, if you're listening, I might come back one day. <laughs> um, this is a guy who you probably, you maybe saw him in Blue Planet too. He was uh, using underwater fish puppets and swimming around with this giant hydrophone that looked like two footballs on a big stick. And he was in Blue Planet too, and he's become this amazing celebrated scientist. But back then he, he and I worked together on these weird mathematical modeling things. So he, he basically said, here's a free option. You can come back anytime and give it a punt, try and figure it out. And I kind of, through having the chance to apply for and do little bits of experience in banking, I kind of worked out that it's a very specific career path and you would rotate around a number of different departments or seats and then eventually you'd land on one and that would be what you do for 10, 20, 30 years until you choose not to. And I felt that choosing to do consulting instead um, was honestly deferring the choice a bit. You'd experience some more things, learn a little bit more about many different things, different sectors, different functions, different countries, travel a lot more. And that's why I made that choice. It was, you know, more leaving doors open and trying to experience more things and learning how to run really complicated Excel models and turn them into PowerPoint slides is the price you pay to do those things. Um, <laughs> so yes, fair point, yeah. it was quite an easy choice to make because the choice was choose later. And that's kind of how I fell into consulting, really. And how was McKinsey like culturally? I mean, it's an amazing place to learn because you are thrust into these situations very quickly with learn as you do training style, huge amounts of empowerment and support, but also high degrees of expectation and often very, very limited guidance or oversight. No one necessarily teaches you how to do anything. You kind of have to figure it out for yourself, but then you work out there's a huge amount of support and that everyone's trying to help you. But these are really difficult problems. And, you know, fundamentally, McKinsey sends teams of young children with laptops into big companies to try to solve problems that those companies can't solve by themselves. And that's quite a tough gig when you turn up with a biology degree. And my first day working was also in Brazil. So that was quite a weird combination of things. So it's a great place to learn. The amazing thing about McKinsey, I think, is when you when you land in a team room in a new country like South Korea and you are working on a really difficult problem for one to three months with five to ten people you've never met before, suddenly you can all be productive in the first 30 seconds and you will basically know what you're doing. You all are on the same team. You kind of know how everything's going to be. And it's the culture and the values that help with that. Um, I carry quite a few of those culture and value and training things with me to this day. But 
the main upshot is that you kind of already know what's expected of you and how to work together at this very, very high degree of productivity without really anyone saying it. And I think that's a really good symptom of uh, of the particular culture and, and way of working that McKinsey has and bits of it really stick with me. Other bits are, you know, harder. There is famously an up or out culture where you either get promoted or you have to leave. A lot of that, you know, happens behind the scenes and it's difficult for many people to deal with. And it, it's, um, you know, you're on the roller coaster, suddenly you're off the roller coaster. There's very high pressure situations. You know, I had to walk into big buildings and meet people who run entire companies and your challenge they say tell me something new why are you here like how on earth are you qualified to tell me anything about my business and you have to come up with answers and prove to them that you can create value and show them a different way of doing things or at least help them come to a different conclusion or look at a different thing set of things in different ways these are all really difficult challenges and McKinsey thrusts you into these situations and you have to sink or swim and swimming learning how to swim that way is actually quite fun and it just happens to be in lots of weird companies lots of different situations and lots of different countries and that was for me a great source of adventure and that's why I enjoyed it so much and what lessons have you learned from these pressure high pressure moments well I think Now being in world of startups and scale-ups and software and SaaS, it, it means that most challenges that come along aren't really that difficult. When I think back to things that we dealt with in the past, you know, there was a there was a time where we were working on what would have been a very, very large uh M&A transaction um, that never happened um, because of the financial crisis. More on that another time. As we went through the deal, the, the terms and the markets just moved slightly against us and that just kept on happening and the whole thing slipped away and then we worked out what was happening in the background and it was an amazing set of things. But let me, let me ask the question differently. Why do you think some companies succeed and others fail based on the vantage point you had at McKinsey? I mean, let me think back to a time where I actually wrote about this. So three of us wrote about the, the top 50 strategy moves of all time. And there are a few things that come out. So I think about a few cases. Um, some companies succeed because they, they are prepared to take advantage of opportunities. There was a time where BP saw that You know, there was a, a short-term dip in oil prices, and that was the moment that they chose to buy Amoco. Um, you know, I personally am not a big fan of oil companies, but BP made this amazing move. Oil prices dripped to an all-time low in 1998, but BP had spent a few years before basically prepping for this moment, the moment of maximum opportunity. And then we saw an almost, I think, 400% increase in oil prices over the next 15 years that basically proved that moment and their readiness for that moment to be the greatest source of shareholder value and advantage in you know many, many parts of the history of oil and gas and industry as a whole. There's other things like the Nintendo Game Boy we can really learn from where, you know, fundamentally a Game Boy is not a particularly good product. It's highly durable. It doesn't have the best screen. It doesn't have the best sound. It doesn't have the best games. It doesn't have color at the beginning. It has really good battery life. Anyone can pick it up and use it. And it has loads of games that suit you. 
And Nintendo has kept that same formula, not having the best processor, not having the best screen, not having the best sound, just being simple, durable, pick up and play, lots of different games. And that's survived for many different generations of Game Boy. And out of these ideas, sort of being prepared to act upon landmark opportunities and understanding the source of true advantage in your target market, like the Game Boy, simplicity, battery life, variable games and pick up and play can lead you to you know decades of success based on very simple things then you can you know these things can be manufactured as well we look at cases like inditex the company behind zara the whole fast fashion industry how can you bring fashion to market faster and cheaper than the big fashion brands can um, how can you bring the, the same fashions to the high street they built an entire supply chain an entire business around that idea that you could do this faster and it drove huge success with really really obvious simple ideas De Beers they created the idea that diamonds are forever that diamonds are for engagement that diamonds are timeless symbols of love this was manufactured in the early 20th century by you know this Dutch South African mining company so these these sources of advantages can, they're things that you can create, there are things that you can land upon, there are things that you can manufacture, but fundamentally, they're always quite simple ideas and then executing and staying true to them is what matters. Um, every now and then a weird thing comes along where you just look at it and think it's genius, how Coca-Cola realized that capital efficiency was gonna be the bottleneck to their growth. So they, you know, they sell the formula and they let other people own the bottling, which is hugely capital intensive. And you could never grow Coke to be as big as it is as fast as they did, unless you did it this way. They just landed on that business insight as a business model choice or McDonald's realizing that supersize me, you know, has since become the worst possible question, but for a time it was a huge growth driver for them. They, they said, you know, we've spent the money to get you into the store. We've paid the staff to serve you. We've built a box to hold your fries and a cup to hold your drink. You've used the ice. We've spent every aspect of acquisition cost to get you here. Now, can we get you to spend an extra dollar to supersize your meal? Because mm -hmm. that will cost us two cents, but we've paid for every aspect of the guests there. And that will be the highest margin question we will ever ask. Can I supersize you? And you always say, yes <laughs> um had to wind that back pretty fast but you know these these sausages these sausages <laughs> sausages these sources <laughs> of competitive advantage can be created landed upon manufactured or destroyed very easily and i think that's what i learned in many different situations at mckinsey and that's where you know great strategy and value comes from yeah amazing insight and how did this then prepare you to start your own company well, it didn't, in a way. And I think the, the one the one bit that I hold from those times is that any challenge is something where usually it's it's not something new. It's something I've seen before. Um, pattern recognition and experience of being in many different situations for many different reasons with many different types of people. I think the, the biggest advantage from working at somewhere like McKinsey is that nothing is really a surprise anymore. And you have pattern recognition from seeing many things in many different ways. The other thing I realized, which is one of the reasons why I left McKinsey and decided to start a company was I'd never really played for real. I'd never made decisions that I would then have to stand by. I'd never, I'd always been a coach, not a player. You'd always, you know, turn up in a building 
run some very complicated analysis that comes to some very clear conclusions and try to create some of these cases that we just talked about. But then you'd disappear to a different country, to a different situation, and you might read about what happened in the Financial Times or the Wall Street Journal a year later. And, you know, and you can never talk about it. You know, I was there, I was part of the idea, but what happened next and what they did with it, that was all the real players. And it kind of made me realize particularly at, at, at one McKinsey event where they get lots of people kind of in the middle of the company together. And they say, this is the time where you're going to choose to stay at McKinsey, you're going to choose to leave. And in, for me, it was at this big um, hotel that they that McKinsey owns in Austria, weird place to be. Um, uh, McKinsey, purely owned hotel, really crazy thing. Um, <laughs> and they, uh, they basically said, this is the time where you'll realize to, to stay or go. And I kind of realized that staying at McKinsey, it's a life of professional service. You live for your clients, you live to empower them, you make them the heroes and you work behind the scenes. All these great outcomes are things that are created by great analysis and great teamwork. And that's something that McKinsey can offer. But you'll always be kind of the enabler rather than the player. You'll always be advising rather than living or dying by the decisions. And it, it kind of made me feel like, do you want to be Alfred, the butler for the Wayne family, or do you want to be Batman? Uh, and I thought being Batman would be much more interesting. I've spent a whole, you know, I'd spent nine years at McKinsey training to to understand, to, to create all the different features in the bat cave to make sure that batman could go out and do the best possible crime fighting how far am i going to take this analogy i'm not sure um, but i thought it was time to do some real batman Love stuff it, yeah. and live and die and play on the field be a player not a coach be you know make your own decisions and stick with it because i realized i'd never really done that before so i wanted to experience that um and that's one of many reasons why um wanted to start a company and experience that for real i think the other bit is from studying in the US and working at McKinsey, the real heroes, the people who I really admired were the ones who did create companies out of nowhere. You know, people like you um, who created entire businesses that are globally well-known where there were decisions along the way that I'm sure were really hard and that was an even bigger way to play for real and to learn. And those were my heroes and I wanted to try it for real. Amazing. And how daunting did it feel when you went from, you know, Alfred's um, salary, no salary anymore, um, pretty much eating what whatever you kill. How did it feel? That's a quite brave decision after eight, nine years McKinsey. Well, I'd love to ask you the same question as well, because I'm sure I'm sure there was a time like this for you too. Um, but for me, uh, there was a time where I, with my wife, carved out a specific amount of time and capital to put behind Uh, the ideas that became a test. There were a few aspects that I thought could be fast-tracked. So many companies spend a lot of time trying to create a product or trying to raise venture money in order to grow faster. And I thought if there was a way to get more capital to support this earlier, you could save a lot of time and take a lot more risk earlier. And I thought that was a that was an equation or a, or a bet that was worth taking. The other one was trying to get customers really early on to get real input from customers. So I, A, tried to carve out a specific budget of time and money and you know opportunity costs to put behind the, the ideas that became a test. And then B, tried to defeat the two biggest constraints to early stage company growth being 
new investment and also real customer input and real revenue. Um, and then took two specific strategies to attack those two problems within the timeframe that I set. And that was how I set about trying to build what became a test. Um, there are other people that joined along the way. The company would not exist with without Tony, who's our CPO and co-founder. All of the tech stuff, all of the architecture, all of the assets that help us be what we are today are due to exclusively to him. I have no idea how, to, how that works even till this day. And there's a bunch of other people that helped us. But I think those first few months uh, and that first period was highly formative. Um, what about for you? Like it must have been similar set of things, but completely different challenges and a completely different way that you attacked it. Yeah, I left banking. I joined a hedge fund. I became a vice president in a hedge fund at age 25. I worked 100 hours. I flew around Europe all the time. I sat on different boards in different countries. And it felt like a very, very exciting life to me back then. But ultimately, I never ever pictured myself being in finance in the long run. And nothing against finance, but I really wanted to have a positive impact on you know people and the planet and figure out something that aligns more closely with my interests and mm. so i love food i love data i love entrepreneurship and i really really kind of wanted to combine these and because i worked such long hours i literally had to quit my job to start i couldn't possibly moonlight and do it on the side so i went from a very high salary to absolutely no salary which is really scary but a fantastic motivation to hustle mm. To be honest, the first two years felt completely crazy. We tried to run through the wall with our head. The strategy wasn't clear back then. You know, we hadn't yet found product market fit. We had to figure out how to convince people to buy online, but also to buy food in a box and buy recipe. And all these concepts were quite novel back then. Now they seem a little bit more normal. But now it's been it's been amazing. And how did you succeed at raising capital early and getting customers early on? I think I attacked each of these problems separately. So trying to understand on the capital point how VC works, um, I still don't think I truly understand how VC works or how decisions are made and that a lot of this happens behind the scenes. But I did know that seed funds are actively trying to create companies that, that will then receive follow-on investments, um, particularly in SaaS or software or businesses with very large addressable markets. It's not about reaching profitability quickly. It's about attacking the maximum opportunity and hitting it with the biggest possible growth to get to scale quickly. So I knew that seed investors were actively looking to bring in later stage investors, series A, series B, series C, and you know growth beyond. So I thought the best way to meet seed investors would be through later stage investors. So the way I met a bunch of seed investors was by meeting later stage investors who were always happy to meet early stage companies and help them along their way because they'd love to invest in the series A or series B two, five, 10 years down the line. So the way I met the seed investors was from those later stage investors giving me an intro saying, please seed investors, can you invest in this company so that I can invest in it when it's big enough and it meets our criteria. And that's exactly what seed investors are trying to trying to hear. So it was more the, the circumstances to create that alignment of interest from the outset and trying to defeat the problems of you know, will this be a good investment for us? Looks like it could be because someone wants to pick it up at a later stage. How big can it be? Looks like it has a very, very large restful market. Can they execute on it? Well, that's the bit we need to talk about. <laughs> um, but we 
we tried to sort of systematically defeat a, a number of reasons why you would not invest in an early stage company and instead put alignment of interests where there could otherwise be ambiguity or void. But one strategy was to to line up the late stage investors before lining up the seed investors so that the seed investors knew that there was a future for this company and that their investment would be hopefully multiplied many times. On the customers bit, this one was probably a little bit overstructured, but this is what, you know, this is the blessing and the curse that McKinsey gives you. Try to get three different groups of customers to give us input really early on. Five where I knew someone in our target market um, and went to them to try to learn from them about the problems they have, various ways that they solve those problems today and what a different way to solve the problems would look like. A second group, uh, a set of people who I didn't know, but I could get a kind of warm intro to. So people who had no reason to help, but, but would be easier to reach. And then a third group, completely cold, uh, people I'd never met before, people who had no reason to help us as a business. But if we could intrigue them enough with what we're doing and talk about the problems and learn from them the solution, then maybe five in each group of three, so 15 total potential clients would be out there giving us input from the first month. And we also got them to speak to investors and say, yeah, if they can build this company, it solves real problems for me. The problems have real value. And therefore, please, can you invest in this company so that it exists so that I can buy it and give them revenue, which is probably what you want seed investors as well. So put all those things together. We tried to systematically defeat all the reasons why you wouldn't get early stage investment and flip the entire process on its head. And we were lucky to get a good outcome with that. And that gave us a lot of capital to fuel early growth early on, which was nice. So you started um, with your co-founder uh, and at some point you needed a team, you needed to set the culture. Talk me through these, these thoughts. Yeah, very early on, we knew that a test to, to reach its maximum potential, we need to make some very specific architecture decisions. We knew that with a $80 billion dollar addressable market for market research, but our specific approach to try to expand that $80 billion market by a factor of 10 to 50, by taking it to new buyers to do new things, by making it much simpler, but also much more powerful. We knew we'd need five years from the start, we'd need an architecture that supported 50 different languages um, for use in different countries. We knew that we'd have, we'd have to include video capabilities. We knew that we'd have to include interfaces for people who respond to research, but also the people who create research. We knew that those would be very different things, but they'd have to talk to each other. We knew there'd be huge problems around data storage and ownership and control and access rights and sort of deletion and addition and combination of data sets, but without violating different uh, international laws that were also in constant motion. So we knew very early on that the architecture for our tech stack had to be kind of five years from now ready. And that really slowed us down in the early days. Um, but it meant that we hired a lot of backend engineers to work on the architecture. It meant that we were very, very slow getting to market, very unusual. We, we deliberately didn't want revenue early on because we were playing the long game. I think if we'd built a simpler version earlier, we would not have the potential scale that we have right now. We would have reduced our total opportunity, but we played for the maximum total opportunity. So very early on, the biggest challenge for, for me was hiring people who 
work in engineering, backend, frontend, architecture, um, things like DevOps, where I've got absolutely no idea what they do. I've got no idea how to assess them. <laughs> I've got no idea what they're talking about. And I've got no idea if what they're saying is right or wrong. So that's where people like Tony, who I mentioned earlier, come in, in that he, he came from Morgan Stanley. He was a risk and trading systems engineer. He understands how to match together different interfaces, different points of liquidity, different data sources and flows of value, and then to express those in different ways in real time and to load test that to a hundred thousand times its current volume and like these are the kind of early decisions that stick with us till today uh, that help us with the architecture the other thing was culture for me personally a big mission that i don't often talk about i'd never really worked with anyone for more than three months ever in my entire career so suddenly embarking on a journey where we're hiring people who we hope will be with the company for two three four five years you know many of those people are still with us today that was completely new. Um, I wasn't going to vanish on a plane to Kuwait or you know Argentina six weeks from now. I was going to still be here six weeks from now. And that was completely new for me. So there were a whole bunch of things that I was trying to learn whilst also simultaneously setting up a, a long-term culture, but having never been in one before. And that was really interesting. So I tried to pick elements from McKinsey, elements from my business school experiences, elements from things that I just personally believe in. And that became the genesis of our very early culture, our hiring practices, and then these decisions that we made that were for maximum scale rather than short-term yield. And looking back, I think those were right. We could have done it all a lot more fast, a lot faster, a lot more efficiently, um, but we had fun with it and we all learned a lot. And I think that's probably the, the most important things at that stage. What about for you? That must've been a, a really, really wild ride and really wild set of experiences for you. In a way, there's lots of similarity. Um, we've always focused massively on the customer and building capabilities. So whilst in the early days, we didn't grow that fast, actually, um, we could have grown much, much, much faster. We felt quite confident that it's all about retention. It's about long-term customer satisfaction. Mm. Um, you know, if this restaurant is better, you go there. If the other one is better, you go there. And, and in, in order to create a really, really amazing business in the long run that's sustainable, you just have to obsess about the customer. And in our market, food is incredibly emotional. So in order to build a value proposition that offers the best choice, the best convenience, the best quality, the best taste at the lowest price point, so four or five optimization problems, really, um, you really have to invest into technology early on. So we hired our first data scientist um, with a PhD in machine learning as employee number 10, pretty much, um, very, very early on, before we even had proper fulfillment capabilities. And so we always saw us as a data company that loves food, but the focus really was on capabilities so that we would achieve compounding growth over time. And I think that thesis is now paying off. Today, Gusto is the largest one in the market and by far still the fastest growing one. You know, we're, we're quite profitable. So we are in an amazing position. Every single box we sell um, takes seven kilos of CO2 emissions out of the system. And all Amazing. of all of this success is kind of driven by that early focus on backend and capabilities. But the amount of doubters in the early days and VC funds telling us, you know, focus on customer acquisition, that's the only thing that matters. Don't waste mm -hmm. time on automation, on AI, on building your own data products. It was quite quite tough in the early years, but we had conviction. Uh, we we really fought for it, and I think it paid off. So similar in that way, I guess. And how big is the company today? 
We're 125 people um, wow. in, in a, a few different markets, which is quite fun. We're, we're still 50% engineering, R&D, data science, machine learning, BI, and then 50% marketing, sales, commercial, things like that uh, with a small central team. But we still keep this kind of genesis that we had from the beginning of being very, very engineering and data heavy. Deep down, that's what we want our clients to do. We exist to create data and uh, for clients where they previously had no insight or knowledge or data about what their target customers want or feel or need, particularly for new markets or new products or new ideas. So we need to be as data-driven as we want our clients to be. And we try to live by that mantra every day. So a bit like you, we discovered things very early on that were huge leading indicators of success but we had to take these combination of factors that seemed impossible to do all at the same time and then use tech stack and analytics and data science to make it actually work out and find a way to seal the bullet the whole thing and solve the formula that that would lead to the maximum possible opportunity and that's kind of stayed with us throughout but similar to you it, it did slow us down in the early days and was quite counterintuitive but hopefully that's paying back more and more over time. And what have you learned about sales? I've never worked in a B2B company. It's completely alien to me, so I'm fascinated. <laughs> um, I learn a lot from our sales team every day. We have an amazing set of sellers and um, how they run deal processes the way that they do and how they sort of use the combination of, of human interpersonal skills, but also trying to focus on creating value for the client and our entire deal process stems from there and doing that authentically that's a you know that's an impossible set of tasks it's like you know watching someone play a sport where all you can do is applaud and be a great spectator and wonder how they do that I think the bits I've learned, we kind of break a few rules at a test. We have a very high contract value, but with a very short sales cycle. And we rarely come across competition, which is unlike most SaaS companies. In general, if you have a large contract value, you have a very long sales cycle, you know, six, 12 months for uh, longer if you're selling to government. Our sales cycle is um, about 30 to 35 days, which is amazing. And that means we can drive new results very quickly. At the same time, people don't know that they want or need a test. Everyone knows that they have intuitions. They wish they had more data to help with. They have doubts about how far to take their decisions or how bold to be with their moves. Everyone in our target market, um, which is mainly B2C companies and people who wish they knew more about their target customers, everyone knows that they need more data but most of them have never had the chance to do anything about that before. So our role at a test is to make it ridiculously simple and easy just to start putting data where you have no data before, to make it really easy to make new decisions around that data, to then wonder what's next, and then to, you know, in a couple of clicks, do something about that. But it's kind of showing them something new. And that's why we're inspired by stories like the Game Boy, where handheld computer games was not a new idea, but making it simple and easy and battery life turned out to be really important and lots of different games turned out to be really important like it's not the most advanced screen type it's not the crazy lighting system it's keeping it simple and creating value and to your point focusing on what customers want and everything else stems from there and that's our problem to solve and make easy these are the things that stuck with us so put it all together that's how we see our role in the market and it's a bit like what you were saying if we think about the customer and their goals first and we exist to set up that for maximum success on their behalf and all of our operating choices stem from there that's probably the right approach and that's that's how we attacked it and how plug and play is it 
We think that you can start using a test and receive new data about your target market in about 90 seconds. So you can Amazing. try uh, on our website right now, you can throw out a, a question, a, a few different questions to consumers in the US or UK, 150 of them on any topic that you want right now. And we think that you can do that in about 90 seconds. And our goal is that you will learn something new. You you should use that. Uh, it's completely free. You should use that to throw an idea out there. Like, how would I launch this idea I've got into the US market? What do people in the UK think about XYZ opportunity? Um, learn something about a competitor. Why do people choose Lush over Boots? What makes people walk in? And it's, you know, subjectively, each of us are one data point and even people who work at Lush or Boots are limited by their own experiences and their own points of view. The market, the target market holds all of the answers to these questions and we had to test the R role to make it very easy just to discover that and to learn from your target market about what they want and what right looks like. Because as a scientist, subjectivity, projection, guesswork, absence of data are the exact opposite. It's almost illegal to work this way. And I think this is the way that you know, B2C businesses should work too. You should be able to put data very easily where you have nothing. When you're forced to guess, you should seek more data rather than assume that you can't get it. And that's why I talk about making it simple and fast and easy. We call it growth without guesswork, but deep down it's putting data where there was no data before so that you can inform intuition, dissolve doubt and make bold moves sooner and be right more often. That's value and that's how we think about it. You know, you've obviously achieved amazing success um, leading a business with 125 people. And I'm sure your team is amazing and they're empowered to do whatever they need to do. So what is it that actually you do? <laughs> I, don't, I don't really do anything. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're being humble, but there are probably very few decisions you still do take. And there are few topics um, you have the most impact on your business. Yeah, I try very hard um, to 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 not be involved every day in every decision in that I always see it as a, as a as a sign of success in a great business where you can take the top people out of it and you know potentially the business performs better without them there um, there's there's a few different books and articles that have been written about that exact topic so there's very few things where you know I'm the bottleneck or I'm at the center of it or I'm forced to make a binary decision often the right choices emerge from the data or they emerge from intuition that we then inform or doubt that we dissolve for ourselves The main bits that are left are the classics for a company at our stage. Um, fundraising and working with investors, that's a big part until you are in a position like you are where you're profitable and growing very quickly or at the same time, um, we are still loss making and trying to grow very quickly, but we make a loss each month to do it. So we do need new sources of capital to continue doing that. And that's a big part of my job. I think second is recruiting. A business is only as good as the people in it, which is a huge cliche, but that means that the more time I invest in recruiting, hopefully the better outcomes we get there, the faster new leaders can feel empowered. And as ever, we're hiring people to do things that we don't know how to do to bring new things into the business. So our whole approach to recruiting is finding the right people, but then making sure they're set up 
they're set up to have the impact and to fill the void and to add clarity and new directions where there was nothing before. So, you know, standing in the way or trying to control that is the exact opposite of what I feel is right. And then the third bit is speaking with clients, be they new clients, existing clients, learning about what they want, learning in sales processes, what our target market wants from us, learning how to make things simpler, but more powerful. That I try to do as much as possible. So I try to get involved in sales calls. I try to speak to existing clients as much as possible. We're starting to organize specific events around our largest clients and uh, listening to them more actively and doing what they expect from us earlier and bigger because you know it reflects our relationship with them that we're kind of stage of maturity in our company where we're starting to add these things too but put it together clients recruiting and finance those are probably my three things what about for you uh, it's talent people culture so i think mm. the the number one focus for me really is up on creating the conditions for other people to win and to succeed and to be their best and to unlock their potential, mm. but at scale. So this year we're growing from a thousand people to 2000 people. Oh. Um, and obviously I'm not meeting everyone joining anymore. And therefore, yeah, it's all about conditions, frameworks, culture, um, behaviors, making the winning behaviors as repeatable as possible and as easy to recruit for um, as possible. And then making sure that we don't celebrate results, we actually celebrate performance. And by performance, I literally mean, you know, culture, behaviors, conditions, so that we create this amazing environment for people to be at their best and to have fun and to enjoy working at. And then the results are kind of the byproduct. That's by far the number one focus. Secondly, it's strategy. We are strategically very centralized and then operationally decentralized with decision-making and data pushed into you know, people as close as possible to the customer. Mm -hmm. But so vision, strategy, I spend a huge amount of time on thinking about the future, thinking about what will happen between 2025 and 30, but then not getting involved in execution in the here and now, um, in this quarter, in this year's financials, mm -hmm. even next year's financials, you know, within a range should be done by now. So ideally, I really focus on, yeah, the future and then work backwards to today. What are the capabilities we need? What's the maximum investment we can do to increase the probability of success for 2025 to 30? And it's almost about capital and talent uh, allocation rather than uh, about micro decision making. I've got amazing people in the business who take decisions all day long. And I'm truly, truly blessed um, by the talent we have and the culture we have. Uh, I think that's my biggest learning. It's literally all about people. Completely with you. And I think, you know, as CEOs, our role is to look into the future and see where things can go and then run the reverse loop into the present and look at what you need to believe or the dependencies, the critical path, and then try to narrow the range of outcomes and then to empower everyone to, to create maximum yield along the way. But I completely agree that like, you know, results for the next few quarters are already in motion right now. It's how we maximize the pos the potential of that performance to create the right outcomes now, but also looking back at how we can how we can do things today that will pay off more in future. And I think that's the constant loop that we all walk back and forth into the future, back to the present, into the future, back to the present. And <laughs> out of that comes a whole bunch of fun learning and ideas to uncover. But I think doing that with other 
founders, CEOs, team members, investors. That's always quite a fun walk to do together. Um, and it's quite fun to share and to walk around in other people's businesses. And that's something that I always quite enjoy too. So thank you oh. for sharing. Oh, it's incredibly fun. Um, look, thank you so much for taking the time and huge congratulations to all the success you've had and no doubt will have. Um, it's been really, really fun getting to know the business and you better. Likewise, thank you so much for having me and please save the congratulations for the NASDAQ IPO or when we're much, much larger. I think if you round with our addressable market, if you round our market share to the nearest number, it's it's zero. So no <laughs> congratulations required, but thank you very much for being on here, uh, for having me on here and um, really fun to chat and get to know you and Gusto a lot better and hear your stories too. So thank you. Thank you.